You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of The Dirt on the Past. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of this program. This week, we are at the Extreme History Headquarters speaking via Zoom with Joe Watkins about his career as an archaeologist. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. I'm excited to be Oh, oh, Joe, we wish we were there with you in Tucson. Yes. So, yeah, unfortunately, but, but this will work for now. <laughs> it, it's, it's a little chillier here in, in Montana and a lot more snow on the ground than I'm sure Tucson has at this time of year. So we're a little jealous of you, Joe, being in the, the warm climates of Arizona. <laughs> well, welcome, Joe. I'm so excited you're here with us today. And I just wanted to start off by introducing you. And, you know, you have such a varied and long career that we could spend the entire hour reading your bio. So I've cut this down quite a bit, but, um, but there's a lot more than, than what I'm just going to say now. Dr. Joe Watkins is a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. He retired from the National Park Service in 2018, congratulations, Joe, where he served as the American Indian Liaison Officer supervisory anthropologist and chief of the Tribal Relations and American Cultures Program in Washington, D.C. He was the director of the Native American Studies Program at the University of Oklahoma from 2007 to 2013 and an associate professor of anthropology at the University of New Mexico from 2003 to 2007. His study interests concern the ethical practice of anthropology and the study of anthropology's relationship with descendant communities and populations, including American Indians, Australian Aboriginals, New Zealand Maori, and the Japanese Ainu. Am I saying that right? Ainu? Okay. His current research is helping the Ainu of Hokkaido, Japan, use indigenous archaeology to increase their cultural time depth. Joe also currently serves as the president of the Society for American Archaeology. All right, so Joe, we first want to begin, I like to begin at the beginning. I'm always interested in how people got to where they are. So my first question is really about asking you to um, go back in time, maybe to the late 60s, um, early 1970s. What is it then that drew you to study anthropology and or archaeology in school? And I'm curious when it occurred to you that you might make this a career, and if at the time 
you were perhaps one of the only or few Native Americans that were entering into those disciplines. Just tell us a little bit about what that was like and, and how you made those decisions to, to become an anthropologist. Sure, Nancy. Um, well, I first got interested in archaeology when I found an archaic 6,000-year-old uh, projectile point on my family homestead in southeastern Oklahoma. Uh, I showed it to my grandmother, who spoke Choctaw, but did not speak English very much. And she translated through my cousin, who was bilingual, that the projectile point um, wasn't part of the Choctaw history, but it was part of the unwritten history of the people who lived in that area before the Choctaw came in. So I took that at that time. Um, I recognized that that unwritten history was important. My grandmother also pushed the idea that we had to remember that unwritten history because it was part of, you know, basically people's past. So at the age of 10, I got interested in what I thought archaeology was going to be. I um, was primarily uh, wanted to be a paleontologist and go to China and work with Roy Chapman Andrews uncovering dinosaur uh, egg nests, but that didn't quite turn out that way. Uh, so when I got to high school, and really in 1968, I guess my junior year of high school, I got interested in archaeological surveys and actually volunteered to be on a survey in East Central Oklahoma and didn't find any archaeological sites, didn't find any projection points, but it got me interested in the stories that archaeologists tell. So went to the University of Oklahoma, got my bachelor's degree there, uh, spent the summer between my junior year and senior year in Europe. I got to work with Francois Bord, uh, a oh major yeah. archaeology professor at that time. Uh, and that really got me even more interested in in working about the the stories that archaeology could tell us about the past. As you said, Nancy, there weren't many people in archaeology or there weren't that many American Indians in archaeology at that time. In 1969, when I went to uh, the University of Oklahoma, a very important book was published um, called Custer Died for Your Sins by Vine Deloria Jr. Yes. yes. And that book really had an impact on me in that it forced me to look at the practice of anthropology and archaeology on the peoples whose history was being studied and written about. And that ultimately is what led me to really get involved in indigenous archaeology and working with indigenous peoples around the world. Yeah, kudos to Vine Deloria. I mean, that book is still very powerful and still widely read. Um, at least I always assign something by Vine Deloria when I'm I'm teaching those sections of the course. Um, thank you for that, Joe. It was fascinating hearing sort of your early experiences and who you got to work with. Right, and I'm glad you brought up that idea um, of indigenous archaeology and Vine Deloria. We were speaking 
oh, just a month or two with a young man whose name is Aaron Brin. And he received his degree from the University of Montana in anthropology with an archaeology focus and has now gone on to become the State Historic Preservation Officer at for the Crow Nation here in Montana. And so we were talking with Aaron on this podcast a little while ago, and he was we were talking about indigenous archaeology. And Aaron mentioned your name and said that you are the father of indigenous archaeology. And so Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite an honor, we thought. Yeah, to, we yeah. thought so too. <laughs> and so um so it was so fun to talk with um Aaron about, you know, that he he you are definitely one of his mentors, and so that was wonderful. But um in fact you've written a book called Indigenous Archaeology that I'm sure Aaron read, and that was published in two thousand and one. So can you tell us a little bit more about indigenous archaeology and, and what that really means to you? Yes, certainly. Uh, to me, indigenous archaeology is the practice of archaeology with, by, and for indigenous peoples. And it, it sort of brings with it the idea that the community involvement in the practice of archaeology is truly much more important than and what comes out of the, the archaeology itself. Indigenous archaeology is a way uh, of trying to integrate uh, tribal stories, tribal concepts about time, about the past, uh, as well as to question some of the broader ideas about who, who owns the past, uh, for whose benefit should the past be discussed and written about. So in, I've been doing indigenous archaeology all of my life, even though for the first 30 years or so of it, I wasn't really sure what to call it. Um, I really owe a lot as well to George Nicholas, who's a little footnote in a, a 1997 article that uh, he wrote, talks about a definition of indigenous archaeology. And so I've taken that definition and actually wrote written about it. George Nicholas is a, a, a very prolific author also writing about indigenous archaeology. And even though George himself is not indigenous, the idea that indigenous archaeology can be done by non-indigenous people is extremely important as well. Um, there are a lot of people across the United States, Australia, and really across the world who are really interested in trying to provide archaeological perspectives for tribal people, for indigenous people, to help them talk about their past and their concepts of the past, so that it's not just someone sitting in, in the academy or an ivory tower making pronouncements that really have no relevancy to indigenous populations today. Absolutely. I think it has really become a worldwide movement wherever there are indigenous cultures who have had all of this archaeology and history written about them. I think this this involvement, this move towards collaboration um, is really for the betterment of the discipline, aside from it just being um, a, a richer and more ethical way to, to move forward with this 
work. And I, um, I'm wondering if you could share with us, is there an especially um, poignant or favorite project uh, working with uh, an indigenous community that you can recall, maybe tell us about? I think one of my favorite projects was in the Northern Territory of Australia, working with <clears throat> individuals of the, the Burunga and the Beswick communities up there. To them, the past is not something that happened, you know, a thousand or 10,000 years ago. To many of the members of the community, the past was five minutes ago or uh, an hour ago or a, a year ago. The idea that the past is so much a part of today that it's difficult to separate the two. Uh, there are convenient markers that can be used to separate the two. But uh, just listening to the the indigenous people talk about their concepts of time and, and place, um, it, it really influenced my knowledge about what it means to be indigenous in a different part of the world at a different time. Uh, and in many regards, many of the cultural concepts and ideas in Australia are very similar to what the United States went through in the 1950s and 1960s. The racism in Australia can be blatant or it can be subtle. Um, in many ways, it reminds me of the, the type of social unrest and systemic racism that was happening here in the United States in the 1950s and the 1960s. Growing up in Oklahoma, there were some places where it was worse to be American Indian than it was to be Black. Uh, and I, I do recall growing up as a child um, at my at the area where my grandmother lived, we Indian children weren't allowed into small stores if there were um, white people in the stores. Uh, some of the, the people felt uh, ill at ease with, with us in the stores because they were afraid we might start either begging or stealing or whatever. So we had to wait our turn. And that's, that was a subtle bit of racism that I encountered, um, but uh, many of the Australian Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory experience much worse than that every day. Mm. Well, I wouldn't say that's a subtle amount of racism. That's right. That, you know, that's 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 awful. Right. I um, I'm so glad you had were able to have that experience though in Australia. I I when I teach a section of my anthropology course um, about Aborigines in Australia when we're talking about linguistics. It's super interesting that you mentioned this concept of time is really different because um, just the little bit that I know is that so much of the way that they think about time and ex express and talk about it is, is encoded in their language. And um, so much of it is also tied to place. And it's such a very different way of tying time and place to the landscape. And one of the things that always amazes my student is that in several of the, the dialects um, among indigenous Australians, you know, there are no 
there's no words to talk about spaces and places that center the body. Um, everything is referred to the way you talk about time has to do with um, directionality so that if they're going to talk about um, you're at a picnic and maybe there's an ant crawling up your leg, they would say to you, there's an ant crawling up your southeast leg because everything is so tied into the cardinal directions. So when they would have Aborigines lay out pictures in order from early to late of, say, um, someone aging from boyhood to manhood or a small crocodile growing over time or um, an unripe banana becoming ripe, and then they would lay it out um, always from east to west. So it wouldn't be from... Mm right to left, or um, if you were a Hebrew speaker, or um, left to right, like we conceive of time. And so this idea of time, and um, uh, it's tied to sort of the landscape, there's this sort of insolment, you know, and embodiment of all of that. So it's, it's so hard to imagine an archaeologist with their scientific perspectives really honoring that very different way of understanding the world and the remains, unless you're really trying to incorporate an indigenous perspective. Um, so I can only imagine you must have had some pretty amazing experiences with other groups of people. It was, it was very nice indeed. And, you know, in subtle ways here in the United States, we have a directionality. We talk about back east, up north, down mm -hmm. south, out west. And when we talk about time, we kind of consider time behind us, the future in front of us, right, and right. contemporary time around us. So we have some varied concepts of time, but for Western cultures, time is very much a linear system. Very much a linear, and, and for many other cultures, it's more like a spiral and can fold in on itself. Um, so it's fascinating to think about. Um, one of the other things that you've done in your career is some experimental archaeology. And Crystal and I were wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about that and how it may relate to your own views on indigenous archaeology and just in general broader efforts to bring a, wire, a wider variety of perspectives to the discipline. So maybe you could talk a little bit about experimental archaeology and, and how you've used it to better understand the past. Well, certainly. Uh, to me, experimental archaeology has always been about uh, looking at <clears throat> the technologies that various peoples of the past used, whether it was the Paleolithic archaeology and the uh, reduction systems that they might use to create bifaces or blade technology. Um, it was also the idea of being aware of the materials that people used in order to, to survive and, and to um, continue on from day to day or year to year. One project I did back in 1977 was I dug a pit house in, in Taos, New Mexico. It was uh, 12 foot in diameter, eight foot deep. Um, I covered it with poles and laths and, and things. And then I lived in it for a year. Wow. Oh, was, wow. Well, for nine anyway. That must have been an amazing experience. I, I think your original you're... dissertation topic. Okay. I, f I feel like you're taking experimental archaeology to a whole new level, really, Joe, that, that would be hard for other people to match up with. 
It, it was fun. I mean, I must admit, I was, I was a youngster. I was 25, 26. Um, didn't have to have a job because I had uh, funding that, that would pay for my living expenses while I took the time off. And it was, I was really interested in looking at how the basket maker populations of northern New Mexico interacted with the light that they were able to get coming in through the, the, the hatchway on top in order to make pottery, to, to grind corn, to make projectile points. <clears throat> and I wanted to look at the formulation of activity areas within a confined space of a subterranean pit house. I thought it was a very straightforward uh, project. Um, of course, it turned in, into anything but straightforward in that when I completed it and had my maps in hand and went back to Southern Methodist University, one of my professors said, well, this is great. So if you can find like 45 or 50 pit houses that have the same level of mapping, then we should be able to turn this into a dissertation oh, uh, somewhere down the line. <laughs> and I said, okay, uh. and went to uh, the Southwest, went to um, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Flagstaff, uh, museums and universities and tried to dig out maps of pit houses that had been excavated. I came up with six, oh, six my. pit houses that had been excavated and piece mapped with the materials on the floor. So my professor said, well, okay, now what are you gonna do? So uh, needless to say, I did not get to, to write a dissertation on that topic. I had a, a generally a good time, although there are times in Taos, New Mexico, when it does get 10 to 15 below zero up in the mountains. But yeah, wow. The pit, the pit house itself stayed remarkably warm, well insulated. Um, a, a small campfire or a small fire heated it up and it would retain the warmth for three to four days. So nice. I got a good deal of insights into survival in, in a pit house, but nothing that I could really say scientifically. It's all anecdotal at this time. So, mm. um, but it was a, a, something that I wish I had done better, something I wish I had um, found a better way of retaining the data, uh, recording the data, and so on and so forth. But I, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything else in the world. It was, it was fun. Yeah, and what an incredible experience just to have that same sense. I've always wondered what it's like because, I mean, so many of those dwellings look like they would have been pretty amazing um, to live in. But can, can I ask, this is awful, but what did your dissertation end up being about then? Well, ultimately... Uh, my dissertation was about the anthropologist perceptions of American Indian issues related to uh, the practice of archaeology. Oh, fantastic. What I, I did is I created uh, a series of questionnaires 
that were based on scenarios. Um, and throughout the course of the six scenarios, the questions uh, en enabled me to get a better understanding of what issues archaeologists felt drove their research, like in terms of excavations, whether it was whoever owns the land, whether it relates to American Indian, Indian perceptions of land, and so on and so forth. Uh, again, to me, that the project was um, a little bit elementary now that I look back on it, but it did allow me to understand and to, to recognize that based on the respondents to the questionnaires, individuals who have gained training post-repatriation, i.e. after 1989-1990, after the National Museum of the American Indian Act or the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, have a much broader understanding of American Indian perspectives about the practice of archaeology, whereas the, the individuals who uh, got their training prior to um, the Repatriation Acts have a general concept that science and archaeology is for the benefit of everyone and that scientific data and the utility of scientific data outweighs the, the wishes and desires of any one particular tribe or tribal group. So um, it really got me into looking at the ethical practice and ethics regarding the practice to, of archaeology. I think, I think those issues are still um, very much with us. I think the needle has moved in terms of how many people in the discipline now are at least aware that that's a question. I think before it really, I agree with you, it was an assumption that the, the scientific knowledge outweighed um, the perspectives or wishes of indigenous people. But I think still with dealing with them, human remains and um, doing the human genome sequencing and DNA, it sounds like there's still some issues there where this this scientific perspective and curiosity just to know um, can butt upright against how people think these ancestral remains should be treated. So that's fascinating that you started this back with your dissertation. I mean, that really ended up being kind of the beginning of indigenous archaeology. But I really have to ask you a question before we go on into these deeper matters. What happened to the pit house? And can we Airbnb it? Like, is it still there? <laughs> um, actually, portions of it are there. In the 1980s, uh, it, it was located on uh, Fort Bergwin Research Center lands. Fort Bergwin is a Southern Methodist University branch campus, campus in Taos, New Mexico. Uh, the archaeology field school director in the mid-80s determined that the pit house itself was a, um, a safety hazard. I believe that some of the uh, students at the field schools had discovered it and were hanging out in it or something. Initially, what I had intended to do was to uh, destroy it, go back and, and look at how the infilling, infilling and palynology and such, how that all happened over the course of time. After it was 
filled in. Another project I had in mind was to go back and bring a, a set of indigenous students, um, 15 to 20 students, and ask them and get, teach them archaeology techniques, excavating that pit house so that I could uh, I interpret it based on my recollection. The, the students could ask me questions about some sort of ethno-archaeology in relation to that and, and so on and so forth. It's still a project that I think would be ultimately tenable and doable, but I've pretty much run out of time and, and I have no funding to do it. Uh, I would be glad to, to work with anyone who would want to or could get the program together to do it. Unfortunately, Southern Methodist University really will only allow the excavation of that pit house if it's part of an SMU uh, program. So I could not go in without bringing SMU in on it. Um, but it, it's the, uh, I believe the, well, I, I know the surface indications are still there. I went back and visited, visited the pit house uh, in 2006. And so the, the Vegas and some of the wood is still there. So I know it's, it's uh, locatable easily. Wow. Well, I That's definitely crazy. think we're going to be calling SMU yeah. um, after this podcast. That is absolutely fascinating. I'm now my, my wheels are spinning. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Nancy Mahoney and Crystal Alegria on KGVM.org in Bozeman, Montana, or wherever you find your podcasts. We are speaking today with Joe Watkins, who's in Tucson, Arizona, in sunny Tucson, um, about his career in archaeology and about indigenous archaeology. So, Joe, you are the current president of the Society for American Archaeology. The SAA is an international organization that, since its founding in 1934, has been dedicated to research about and interpretation and protection of archaeological heritage of the Americas. With nearly 7,000 members, it's a very large organization, the SAA represents professional and avocational archaeologists, archaeology students in colleges and universities, and archaeologists working at tribal agencies, museums, government agencies, and in the private sector. SAA has many members throughout the United States. I usually am a member. I don't know if I currently am, but <laughs> I often am. <laughs> um, and they have members around the world as well. It's a pretty big deal to be the president of this large organization. And so are you, Joe, the first Native American president of the Society for American Archaeology? Um, not really, actually. The, the very first president of the Society for American Archaeology was Arthur C. Parker. Uh, oh. He was of uh, tribal descent. His father was, um, oh, what tribe? I've forgotten. Uh, his father was tribal, his mother was not. And so in that regard, the, the local tribe did not consider him uh, Seneca, I believe. I mean, oh, yeah. I, I'll have to find out exactly what his tribal um, affiliation was. But he was a, an archaeologist in the 1920s and 30s that worked with the 
many archaeologists in the northeastern United States. So he was the very first uh, president of the society. And the society now currently has a scholarship for Native American students for training in archaeology named after Arthur C. Parker. So uh, we've continued to recognize his legacy and the fact that the society was built by and started by uh, such a, a, a illustrious tribal member, as it were. So I am actually the, the second um, okay. president of, of the society who is a, a tribal person. So okay. oh, that's great I kind of tell people that um, it's unfortunate that it took 85 years to get a second one in place, uh, but it's good actually that the society and the society's membership um, recognized that they felt that I could help lead the society in one way or another. So I feel very highly honored uh, to, to be its president at this point in time. Joe, do you think you've brought a different perspective um, as president than maybe other presidents since, um, since there hasn't been another Native American in 85 years? I think I do in some way, just in terms of um, my way of communicating and interacting with people, for one. Uh, I'm not a real forward-thrusting person. I'm a little bit more of an individual. I don't have an extremely strong personality to say, this is the way it's going to be because this is what I say. And so we do listen. We do have a great deal of communication. We do try to reach consensus about important issues. Um, in many ways, I, I feel it very good that the, the majority of the issues that American Indians are concerned about that society has dealt with over the course of the past 20 or 30 years. One thing that we are doing now is looking at updating the statements that the society has made in relation to the treatment and display of human remains in presentations or in our publications, as well as trying to get more involvement of Native American communities within the, the archaeology discipline and the archaeology enterprise. Uh, we are bringing, um, this is the first year that formally the society is bringing a land acknowledgement to its annual meetings, recognizing the the traditional owners of the indigenous lands upon which we are meeting and which we will be meeting in the future. So um, I can't lay claim that these are, are all the things that I am bringing to, to the society, but I feel very glad to, to recognize the fact that they are happening while I am its president. So it's kind of, um, I don't know, it, it's, I'm hoping that I'm not the last president uh, with tribal blood uh, for the SAA. Uh, we do have board members who are extremely qualified to be the next president and board members, committee chairs, committee leaders of tribal descent and, and tribal members who are very qualified to be the next president. So I'm just hoping it doesn't take another 85 years for it to happen. 
Yes, yes, here, here. definitely. Here, here. So, Joe, with your work at the Society for American Archaeology, you're kind of able to see the cutting-edge research and practices of archaeology happening, kind of playing out. Can you give us a peek into the future of archaeology? We're going to ask you to, instead of looking back, to look into the future and <laughs> to look forward and tell us what trends you see in store for cultural resource management and agency, government archaeology, and for academic archaeology. I'll be glad to. It is, of course, that's a very uh, large ask. To, I feel sort of like a, a, a Puxatani field, the groundhog, if I see the shadow <laughs> with uh, six exactly. more years or something. But we don't want you to go but, back into um, your hole. Don't no, do that. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm, I'm sitting in the sunshine here. There we go. Coming in through my window, so I am seeing my shadow. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> it is noted. <laughs> I, I think the primary thing that I'm witnessing in terms of uh, research in archaeology is the trying to bring the community into it. Uh, Community-based participatory research research, CBPR for, for short, uh, has been used primarily in the health fields to, at the beginning to, to basically go to the community and say, uh, I have these skills and abilities. How would you like to use me? What information do you want to gain? Um, and if there's nothing here that we can offer you, thank you very much and, and we'll move on. So there has been much more involvement of community. The, the things that archeologists are investigating are, are ranging from deep questions about when were we first here or when can our tribal group be first recognized in the, the archeological um, data, uh, all the way to the smaller things of, well, which family lived here in the 1930s and what can you tell us about what their lifestyle was in relation to the, the broader population? Um, how did they experience the, the Great Depression at all? Was, do we recognize that they were using different animals, hump, hunting different ways? Depending on what the communities want to learn, we are very open to providing our expertise to helping them do that. Also, one thing we're seeing is a great deal more of um, geomorphological and geophysical exploration uh, where we can get a better perspective of, of what is under the ground surface without necessarily having to dig all the way through the ground surface in order to, to see what is, is underneath. Um, really, nothing will ever be able to replace full-on archaeological exploration, but we can provide enough information to know whether or not excavation of one archaeological site uh, will provide more information than excavation of another one. Also, one of the things that I've been watching with a great deal of delight is the growth of the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer Program through the National Park Service with more than 200 
different tribal historic preservation offices across the United States, I feel that it is becoming much more relevant that the tribal perspectives on how they want archaeology to evolve, if you will, that they are making a great deal of impact. If you look that there are only 50 state historic preservation officers, the tribes represent four times as many officers. Um, truly not as much land protection, land coverage, or, or land ownership, if you will. But the tribes can actually may have a major difference in, in how archaeology plays out over the course of the next 50 years through the THPO office system. That's wonderful. Joe, I I have kind of a longish sort of question I'm, I'm going to ask you, but part of it is um, because I'm going to be quoting you back to you. Um, when I wrote um, a prospectus for my dissertation uh, at MSU, you were one of the people that I quoted and put in there. And so part of what I quoted has to do with um, this discussion of for me, archaeological remains, who they belong to, how they become property, and sort of the weird quirks of archaeology in the United States. Um, so I had come across an article in um, the SAA record in November of 2015, and it was about the pros and cons of consulting with collectors. And Bonnie Pitblado and Michael Schlott had, had gathered some people together and people had written up, and you were one of the contributors. Um, When I was starting out in graduate school um, the first time around a while ago, we were not encouraged to talk too much to collectors because the thought was that archaeologists could inadvertently um, encourage the destruction of archaeological sites um, by um, talking to collectors and encouraging them, or that we might inadvertently authenticate artifacts that were illegally or unethically obtained. And and there's been a recognition lately that there are some collectors who, who really approach the archaeological record sort of as an avocational archaeologist and that we owe a lot to some, especially in terms of the, the Paleo-Indian, the very deep past, and just being able to know where those sites are and share that, that data. But um, as part of that debate and in the your contribution – um, I quoted you because when you were asked to weigh in about the pros and cons, um, I, I really was struck by your answer and the whole other discussion that it opened up, which is I said, Watkins' response amounts to a substantial critique of the debate itself, because you're questioning whether, quote, heritage should belong to the entire nation, this idea that it belongs to everybody because it's science, should it belong to the descendants of those whose culture originally created the material, or to the highest bidder. And for me, this question was really related to, in the United States, what goes back to the Antiquities Act of 1906. So by by making every artifact on federally owned land essentially the property of the federal government, effectively that law made property the you know any artifacts that were on private land 
privately owned property by those property owners. So we're one of the few nations that doesn't have full protection of ancient remains and artifacts on any land. Um, the, the state doesn't protect those. We have, if a site is on your private land, it, unless it's human remains, it's considered your private property. And so that that law, going back so far, kind of privatized a lot of this. So we have this ongoing issue with collectors and how to deal with them and what should happen to those um, remains. So I, I just thought um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, because this question of like, should these things belong to the highest bidder? I don't think anyone would agree, but I think it speaks to this idea of what is the greater good or what are the the ethics surrounding where artifacts should end up and for whose benefit. I'm finally done with it my is, question. <laughs> it is a, a very difficult situation trying to come to terms with the, the fact that a fence, an artificial line on the, the land creates a, a different perspective on the past and ownership of the past. In my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion, the information available about the, the deep history about the past uh, is a commodity, unfortunately. For many archaeological professors, that feeds into them. It provides them with a, a set of knowledge that they can use to, to further their career. Right. To tribal people, it provides them a connection with the past. And, and so in that regard, it, it's a, a time marker of sorts. It's a commodity of cultural heritage that they can utilize to help them have a better understanding of the types of issues that their ancestors may have faced. Mm. To the collectors, it's that the utility of materials to collectors varies. For some people, it's the thrill of touching something 10,000 years old. It's the, the symmetry of the the projectile point or the piece itself, the artistic um, materials that were created, the, the ideas that the individual who made that object imbued it with particular powers. So there are so many different perspectives on the materials that are being collected that it's difficult to, to create any one stereotypical um, idea about it. To me, the information that's available within the, the materials rests on its archaeological context. So if, it's, if someone were to bring me a, a, a fluted projectile point of, a, say, a Clovis point or a Folsom point, really all I could say is that's a pretty piece of flint uh, without the the scientific context, it doesn't provide us really any information. We can talk about raw material sources, but we ultimately have to believe the word of the person who tells us where they found it. Uh, even if we have photographs, the, the 
there are too many circumstances of archaeological sites being salted or uh, having uh, modern day recreations put in archaeological context or any number of ways the materials being uh, misrepresented, whether purposefully or accidentally. And so in that regard, to me, materials in collections have a different set of values, but not really scientific value. It's kind of a, I don't know, I guess I would put scientific in quotation marks in, in that regard. Because without the context, we cannot be certain at all that they relate to anything in the past. They could have been made. A, a good friend of mine, Bruce Bradley, is a wonderful flint napper, and he is been making projectile points for 50 or 60 years by now. And I have some wonderful points that he made for me um, during various birthdays uh, of my life. And those materials, um, if they were made to look old and put in an archeological context, it would be nearly impossible not to believe that they relate to the archaeological culture under study. So I don't know if I've answered your question or if I've tap danced around it uh, scientifically or not. No, no, I think you, you've just kind of further expressed this issue that I agree there's these different stakeholders that are approaching the same objects from such different perspectives. And um, I agree with you in also very much that the knowledge about past artifacts and sites is very much a commodity for um, those who make a, a career on it. And I think the recognition of how um, collectors can be very resentful of that because they feel like the archaeologists are hiding information and then the archaeologists are resentful. And then both of those groups really... Um, miss the the whole other piece of what these um, objects signify and represent, I think, for people's identity, their cultural identity, if they're a, a descend, member of a descendant community. So no, I think um, your, your answer was um, exactly um, the kind of thing we were hoping to hear from someone with your experience and in your position. Um, it's something that very much for Crystal and I is something that we're always aware of and talking about and concerned about in terms of how the discipline goes forward. Um, and, and just to pivot here, the, the Ainu in Japan, there's not a lot of protections the way I understand it. They're an indigenous group of people that J the Japanese colonized, I think, during an imperial phase in the past. And they have not had a lot of protections of their indigenous cultural remains. And so because you've worked with them, I was wondering if you could just give us a little peek into what that project was like, what that's about. Sure, I'll, I'll be glad to. <clears throat> I first got involved with working with the Ainu in 2007, shortly after the uh, Japanese government actually passed their law, which said basically that the Ainu were the Japanese uh, indigenous population. The majority of the Ainu lived on the, live on the northern island of Hokkaido. Uh, it's... Uh, Hokkaido is where the Japanese go to get good sushi. 
Ah. It's a, a wonderful place. Uh, we, I love good sushi. Good know. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Um, but they, as you say, the Ainu have, since 2007, have really become much more of a, I guess what you would call a an indigenous population. Previously, the Ainu were what has been considered the Ainu were a series of many different um, towns uh, and local areas. They were Ainu primarily because they spoke dialects that the Japanese knew wasn't Japanese. And so they lumped them all into one large group, much like um, calling every tribal group American Indian here in the United States. So they, the Ainu have been working since 2007 to try to create much stronger governmental policies that are working toward equality with the, the normal, I guess, if you will, Japanese citizen, but also recognition for the distinctive cultures that the Ainu have and brought to the Hokkaido prior to the colonization in the 1860s by the the imperial or the yeah the imperial Japanese at that time. So the we've been working with the Center for Ainu and Indigenous Studies at Hokkaido University. Archaeologist colleague there, Hirofumi Kato, has been at the forefront of doing indigenous archaeology. In, in Hokkaido uh, and has been working to involve the Ainu, especially in regard to the, there is a, a historic time and an archeological time that sort of pre, presages the existence of the Ainu. At the end of that period, the Ainu are actually being recorded as a group of people in Hokkaido. So we have with Japan, with the deep uh, time of recorded historical documents, we can recognize that in Honshu, the group of people that are being written about are the similar or same as the ones in Hokkaido. So we have sort of the historical um, time when Ainu are being recognized in the Japanese record. And then it, as we look from that historical documents going backward in time, we can still recognize various culture traits that are, become Ainu, if you will. And so what Dr. Kato has been doing is working with Ainu communities to say, this is what we can offer you. Um, how would you like for us to proceed and what sorts of information would you like for us to offer you? So some areas in the far Northeast are looking at to what extent the Ainu populations utilized the local resources as, as well as a, a large tract of land that has now become a, a national park on Shiratoko Peninsula. So what they are doing is trying to create connections to the 
that geography of, of that area. In some areas, the, the Ainu are looking to create a little bit more of a time depth so they can talk to their children and their children's children about where the Ainu came from, uh, how they survived prior to the, the Japanese colonization, and to gather stories of, of the past and deep time that archaeology can provide them. So it, it's a wonderful project, and I'm just hoping to go back to Hokkaido as a visiting professor, maybe for a year uh, coming up th later on this year. Wow, that would that, oh, would, that would be fantastic. Yeah. Joe, are they doing any repatriation of items with for the Ainu? Um, yes, recently the um, the museum at Hokkaido University uh, transferred the remains of 12 known individuals to the um, Hokkaido Ainu Association. Um, the materials will not be reburied, but they will find their future home, if you will, in the new Ainu Museum uh, that was opened up last year. The museum called Opopoi, which means basically coming together is uh, replaces, um, it's the National Museum of the Ainu. Um, there are other um, museums on Hokkaido at Asahikawa, Nibutani, and in other Japanese towns that have their own sorts of Ainu museums. But this is the National Museum of, of the Ainu. So it's sort of like the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, in D.C. for American Indian tribal people. But what interesting work. I hope that you are able to go back soon and, and um, spend some time there. But we're going to bring you back to the United States again for our, for our last question, Joe. And, and you recently published another book um, called The Story of the Choctaw Indians from the Past to the Present. And this book tells the combined story of the Choctaw as the tribe consisting of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians, and the Jean Band of Choctaw Indians. Am I saying that right? Uh, it's the Gina. Gina. Gina Band of yeah. Choctaw. So can you tell us a little bit, and this is just for, um, I'm asking this question because I'm really interested in this, but can you tell us about these three groups and why they all didn't end up in Oklahoma after their removal. Sure, I'll, I'll be glad to tell you. It's the <clears throat> in the 1830s when Andrew Jackson determined that it was necessary to move the, the tribal members out of the southeastern United States for two reasons. Uh, one, to get them away from the harmful effects of the, the, the white settlers. And the second reason was to get more land for the white settlers in the southeast to take advantage of the, the plantation capabilities that the land in the southeastern United States offered to, for economic growth, cotton and, and so on and so forth. 
in the 1830s, after the uh, signing of the treaties, the, the Choctaw Indians determined that they would began moving to Indian territory at the time, what is now Oklahoma, because they believed that getting away from the, the impact of the people moving into Mississippi at that time was preferred. They felt that <clears throat> by going to Oklahoma and recreating Choctaw culture there, they could delay a great deal of the impact that the white culture would have on, on the tribe itself. There were a large number of people who decided to remain in Mississippi because they didn't want to give up the lands of their ancestors. Uh, they also, many of the people who wanted to remain had a great deal of land and their own plantations there. They were well-established and they felt that moving to Oklahoma meant giving up everything they had worked for and would require them to start over from absolutely nothing when they got to Oklahoma. <clears throat> so those were the two primary uh, tribes up until, I'll say, the 1880s, 1890s. The Gina Band uh, developed from a, a group of Choctaw Indians who moved from Mississippi to Louisiana. Uh, Gina is a town in southern, southeastern Louisiana. So the tribal people actually settled in that area. They remained together as a, a group. They interacted. They became a community. They relied upon particular individuals for guidance. And so they <clears throat> became a sort of an a tribe in situ. In the 1950s and the 1960s, the Gina Band um, became recognized. Everyone knew that those people were Indian. Uh, and so they, they maintained a, a separate community identity. So in the 1980s and 1990s, the Gina Band petitioned the Bureau of Indian Affairs for federal recognition and were able to demonstrate that historically they came from a, a group of tribal people that they maintained a community separate and apart from the, the surrounding people. They maintained a series system of governance and so on and so forth and met all the requirements of federal recognition. So the tribe was federally recognized um, I'm sorry, I can't remember offhand the, the date that they received federal recognition, but they were able to become a federally recognized independent tribe separate from the, the three different, um, the two other Choctaw tribes. The, the Choctaw tribe of Oklahoma considers the Mississippi band of Choctaw Indians the traditional band okay. because they stayed in Mississippi they actually gave up federal tribal citizenship uh, in order to stay in Mississippi because Mississippi said, if you're Indian, you can't be here. Mm. So they, they gave up their tribal citizen and became Mississippi citizens. And in 1950, the Mississippi band was re 
recognized and reconstituted as a federally recognized tribe of Indians as the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. So um, there is still a great deal of intertribal communication between the Oklahoma Band and the Mississippi Band. There's not as much interaction between the, the Gina Band and, and the Oklahoma Band, but I think much of that is that relies on the fact that the Gina Band is much smaller and had, I don't believe there's been as much direct outreach, at least from the Oklahoma uh, tribe of Choctaw Indians with the Gina. Um, they all share a great deal of deep history all the way back to, you know, early Mississippian or early tribes from a thousand to 2000 years ago. So uh, we all consider ourselves brothers and relatives in one form or another. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That's so fascinating. Um, I'd love to read that book. I'm going to have to pick it up and, and read that one as well. And we can link that um, yeah. on the site when we post um, this podcast. Yeah. Um, Joe, you've been so generous with your time and all of your knowledge and sharing that with us. And it's been absolutely wonderful talking with you today. Thanks so much for taking this time out of your afternoon. Yes, thanks. Thanks, you're Joe. You're very welcome. It's... Oh, you're, you're very welcome. I appreciate And it is such an honor to be considered to to be on your podcast. Podcast worthy. Well, you you definitely, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is is a four-star show, so yeah. Five-star. Five-star, sorry. I didn't know there were five. Yes, we're definitely a five-star, and you're a five-star guest. Yes, yes, yes. Well, thanks, Joe. That makes me even more honored. Oh, good. (laughs) You'll get your lapel pin in the mail. (laughs) Oh, uh, well, thanks. I, I will wear it with pride. Oh, good. Oh, good. Oh, good. So, so Joe, are the, the Society for American Archaeology meetings going to be uh, online or virtual in this coming year in 2021? Yes, the Society for American Archaeology meetings will be held all virtually this year. They will be uh, held on April 15th through the 17th much reduced registration one will have to be <clears throat> registered for the conference in order to be able to participate but the symposia will be um we will be able to have 30 minutes worth of discussion during the symposia the uh, other we will have the poster sessions will they won't the poster sessions won't be live but you'll be able to interact with the presenters through the, the the poster sessions and they will be able to get back and forth. It's sort of asynchronous, but you will be able to communicate with the the poster presenters. Uh, we are we know that other groups like the European Archaeological Association or the European Association of Archaeologists have had virtual meetings. Uh, they are not, definitely not as good as face-to-face meetings, but uh, we are still trying to offer the opportunity for scholars to present their latest research, to listen to other individuals present their research, and to actually interact in 
one way or another so that we're not just spending our times trying to um, find something to watch on the internet or on cable TV. Right, right. Well, it's, you know, it's a kind of a nice option. Um, it's a, a very accessible option for people to, if they are interested in learning more about the SAA, um, this is a great way to interact with a conference, a conference of archaeologists and scholars talking about archaeology in, in the Americas. So I encourage everyone to go out there and go to the website, saa.org, and find out more about it. Conference coming up April 15th through 17th. There's fast, always fascinating papers and and so it's a great way to get to see some of that if you have never seen it before. So thank you so much, Joe, and thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today as we spoke with Joe Watkins about archaeology, indigenous archaeology, the Society for American Archaeology, and his views on the future of archaeology. Wow, that's a lot of archaeology, isn't it? <laughs> Very you should much. definitely check out his book, Indigenous Archaeology, American Indian Values and Scientific Practice. And thanks for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about the mm. Dirt on the Past. If you're enjoying the Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We are a new podcast and are trying to grow our listener base. So please share. Thanks, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.